0: Listening to the Dietitian Cafe brought to you by New Altra, where we discuss the world of nutrition and dietetics. My name's Harriet Smith and I'm a registered dietitian and founder of HOS Communications. In today's episode, I'll be joined by a dietitian whose career journey breaks the norm for dietitians. Without further ado I'm delighted to be joined by Lucy Jones. She's had an incredibly exciting and varied career and today we're going to be chatting in more depth about that career journey that she's taken and how she's managed to explore opportunities outside of the NHS setting. Lucy thanks so much for joining us today, it's a real privilege to have you with us. Could you start by telling us a bit about yourself? Yes of
1: course, hello Harriet, thank you for having me. As you mentioned, I'm Lucy. Uh, So my job now, I'm the Vice President Clinical for Oviva. Um, For those of you who haven't heard of Oviva, It's actually now the largest digital behavior change provider across Europe. Um, We were founded in Switzerland in 2014. And then myself and a doctor called Mark Jenkins got together early 2015 and co-founded the UK side of the business. And now I work across the group, really focused on three main areas, which is the development of our our pathways that our patients go through. So this is all focused on the patient and making sure that we do the right thing for them. Then it's clinical quality assurance So making sure that we're supporting all of our dietitians and our health coaches across our markets to get their best outcomes with their patients and be able to progress in their careers. And then finally, it's everything around clinical research. So what data we're looking at in each of our markets, is it for publication? Is it for reimbursement? Is it just for shouting from the rooftops about how great it is? So that's what keeps me busy. Apparently, um, by background, I'm an experienced dietitian. I worked in lots of London hospitals and then did some locuming as well. So went here, there and everywhere. Um, I did lots within obesity and metabolic syndrome and, and a fair amount of gastro as well. And then as a, a little sort of, Side note, I um had many television presenting roles over the years. Um so the one probably that most people think of me when they think about is Channel 4's the Food Hospital, which was a while ago now. We're over a decade from completing that. Um, but it was a lot of fun whilst we did it. Um and I had some other series dietitian roles as well, uh on ITV, Alan Titchmarsh Show, across to uh BBC, Eat Well for Less, and then and then lots of others. Um I've worked as a media spokesperson for the British Dietetic Association and Sense About Science. Um, and yeah, after graduating in uh, dietetics, I went on to do a clinical research masters up at the University of Manchester um, and have done lots and lots of our behaviour change courses to keep continuing in my um, professional development in that area. So that's a bit about me.
0: Thanks so much, Lucy. And I have to say, I've been following your journey for many years um, across social media. And I was saying earlier, it's so great to meet someone when you've seen them on your TV screen in your own house. So it's a real pleasure to have you with us. Um, just before we dive into this episode, a quick disclaimer to mention that Lucy and Aviva haven't been paid or sponsored to appear on this podcast, and nor do they have an ongoing affiliation with New Ultra. So without further ado, we're going to dive into our quickfire questions to get to know Lucy on a bit more of a personal basis. So, Lucy, my first question to you is, what is your favorite season of the year? Oh, spring.
1: Yes, spring, it's full of hope, it's full of excitement. We're all blooming freezing from the winter before, but you get those, the first little flowers that peep up and all the little lambs and you get all excited about having barbecues and getting back to swimming in open water. It's very exciting, I love spring.
0: Best time of the year, definitely. And Of course, we're going into a cold, dreary autumn now, unfortunately. Well, yeah. um, second question, um, tell us about someone that you enjoy following on social media at the moment. Gosh, great question. Do you know, I actually follow less
1: people and I follow more companies and movements. So I I love following the the health at every size and intuitive eating movement and really looking at the the dynamics that evolve between those two, uh, um, two paradigms that exist in that. I love looking at digital health overall and what happens in each of the markets with the reimbursement and culture and acceptance. So yeah, I think it's less focused on individuals and more about what's going on in the world of health and and science.
0: Are there any top companies or movements that you'd recommend our listeners follow on socials? Well, certainly Oviva is a very
1: good place to start. (laughs) Um, But no, beyond that, I am I mean, obviously, I already mentioned Hayes and Intuitive Eating. I really like looking at what's going on with the DIGAs. Uh, so DIGA is uh, the Digital Care Act in Germany, and it's this new way for digital healthcare providers to get national reimbursement for everybody. So it really... Um, Uh, transforms access to healthcare, but the product has to be able to show that the intervention is achieved or, or the outcome is achieved without the coach, which is a very interesting movement. And that's now being copied across to Belgium, to Switzerland, to France. So it's really interesting to watch of what's happening in the digital care acts and how people are seeing the transformation of access to digital health.
0: Oh, Very interesting. Thank you for that tip. Um, and our final question is, if you were to pop into a coffee shop right now, what is your go to coffee order? Right
1: now it's cold and it's raining, so it's definitely a flat white. If we go into summer, I have to say I'm a little bit of an iced coffee fan. So it does depend if it's summer or winter, but it's pretty plain and boring. It's flat white or plain iced coffee. I'm, I'm not a super duper fragilistic caramel dosed frappuccino
0: and none of this bubble tea for you then i take it no
1: all bulletproof <laughs> coffee i know just plain old flat white will do me nicely but <laughs> copious amounts of it i should say harriet i'm at least a three a day girl it's what powers
0: us dieticians <laughs> through isn't it <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes i think it might be
0: Brilliant, Lucy. Thank you. Um, We're going to dive into our main topics for discussion today, which of course is about your incredibly varied and interesting career background. But just before we delve into some of that, um, let's take it back to the beginning when you were setting out on your career path. Did you envisage that this is what your career would look like? Did you have an idea that you wanted to be working in media, for example, working in behavior change, or has it just evolved as you've gone along? Tell us a bit more about that journey.
1: It's a great question
0: um
1: so as a child i was always going to be a performer it was not about science or health or anything in the allied health field i was going to dance and sing and act which sort of then gives you a glimpse into how i ended up doing what i was doing um but obviously i grew up a bit as a teenager and decided i needed to actually um have a proper career and i i, I think that, the social and empathic side of me came out and i wanted to make a difference i wanted to really do something impactful that helped other people so the immediate uh, thought came to mind that i'd be a doctor um i didn't quite work out i didn't quite get the a-level maths grade that i needed to get a level maths was the the scorcher so i had a choice i could reset a level maths i could go and do something related like biomedical sciences or i could rethink and at, at that moment I was looking through the times and having a look at all the options on the on the different career paths and came across dietitian. So it was all a bit by chance. And it just instantly resonated. Gosh, it's fascinating, right? We all eat. We all make choices, not all for good reasons. What an interesting area to go down. So. It was slightly just off the hook, decided to go and study for it, thinking, well, I can always go and convert to medicine afterwards. So he did the four-year degree, felt absolutely in love with it, decided this was fate. It was meant to be. It's the best career path anyone can ever have. But I never really thought that I could bring in my other skill set from it. At this point, it was very much envis- envisaging a clinical career, hospital-based, perhaps working up through the ranks of management and being a bit more strategic. And it was only then afterwards that I realized I might be able to use some of my transferable skills to make it a much more varied career.
0: That's really interesting to hear. I think for a lot of us dietitians, um, dietetics isn't on our radar when we're at school and we're being encouraged to choose our profession to go into. So it's really interesting to hear how you kind of fell into dietetics, but haven't looked back since
1: yeah, I agree with you, actually, because on my course, I think there were only three of us that were around age 18. Most of the, the candidates at that point were mature students that had come and done it as, as a second career option or, or another, um, uh, an, a new, new opportunity in their 30s and beyond. And where did you train, Lucy? Which university were you at? So London Metropolitan University, which was just transforming to
0: London Metropolitan University. Before then, it had been called the University of North London. And it still offers dietetics today. Um, we've uh, we've offered some placements to students from there, actually, funnily enough. Um, just going back to your early days working in the NHS, once you graduated as a dietitian, um, looking back on that, is it something you recommend to every dietitian upon qualifying to get that experience in the NHS before looking at other pathways? What are your thoughts on that? I'm going to give a
1: slightly guarded answer because I think if there was an ideal situation and those band five rotational posts were available for everybody, it's an amazing way to start your career hard but really solidifies all your learning from placement. You're given such broad exposure to a huge variety of patients that I do think it gave me a very strong base for my clinical career. However, we know that actually competition is fierce. There haven't been um, perhaps as many opportunities depending on where you live and what your ties are to being in a specific geographical area. So sometimes you do need alternative ways to start your career. And I I fully encourage people to do those. And what you then want to try and do is to think how to broaden out your skill set if you do have quite a focused first position. So the other thing I did when I stopped working in the NHS as a permanent role, actually went back to doing some locuming and i reflected at that point that locuming gives you the same broad exposure really solidifying all your skills like you have to just get it down so i think if somebody hasn't had the opportunity to do a band five rotational post wants to really make sure that they do have a broad clinical learning um, try a bit of locuming for a while because you'll find it gives you a very similar exposure
0: That's really interesting. I feel like locuming is not talked about very much. There's so much focus on getting that first band five rotational role, like you said, Um, yet there are so many locum posts available. So it's uh, really interesting to hear your perspective on that. Um, Now, moving forward to your career on in the television, on our screens, in our newspapers, um, this will obviously be very appealing to a lot of a lot of our listeners. And perhaps people will be thinking, how can I get into this myself? Was it something that just found you or did you go out and actively pursue those opportunities? How did you end up on our television screens, Lucy? There's a little bit of both.
1: So I do remember Quite early on, I started replying to newspaper articles that irked me, something that would be factually incorrect or really leading. Um, And just started, you know, making little bits of uh, noise and impressions. But then the opportunity presented. So the London branch hadn't been active for years and years and years and years. And and they were reforming the London branch. So I decided to join the committee and I actually joined as the, the PR rep for the London branch. And as part of that, I went and did the BDA media training and through that then started to do some regular news appearances. It started to be news like both radio and TV, little bits of BBC News 24, BBC Breakfast, ITV News, and and Sky News and when things would come up. And you just build a little bit of a drumbeat going of when opportunities came up, being willing and just making it happen um, and then the next big thing that happened immediately after that was food hospital. Um, and that came to me through the BDA. So the producers went to the British Dietetic Association and said, we want to screen test all of your media spokespeople. We're going to do this brand new programme and we want a dietitian presenting it. So it was actually through being a media spokesperson that we were all invited to go and screen test for this television show. We had no idea what it would be. And it was very interesting because at that point, they hadn't thought about having a panel of presenters. It was just going to be one and it was going to be a dietitian. And it was actually through lots of meetings that we evolved the idea that it would become much better if it was an MDT approach. And actually, it's going to be really good if you can give some sort of diagnostic and prognosis and, and wider treatment input than just looking at the diet. So let's think about the other professionals that we want as part of that show. And it grew
0: from there. So, Lucy, just going back to what you said about being a media spokesperson for the BDA, um, can you talk us through the the training that you received for that? How did you go from being a clinical dietitian to someone who was confident enough to present on television, radio? What did that training look like? Well, so back then, the BDA training was a day
1: long and uh, it was really... Um, engaging and practical. So they had an external speaker to give you some top tips and then they got you to do some role play. So they would actually pretend that they're interviewing you for the news on a topic And they'd give you the ideas of how to prepare. And I think some of the things that they taught us are relevant for if you are being interviewed in in a job interview, if you're on stage presenting something, and that is have your three points that you want to get across on that topic. So what do you really want them to go away and remember and to take away from that interview? Have your words formulated for that. And then if you find the opportunity to drop them in, great, if you don't, Be a politician and say it anyway, no matter what you're asked, because people actually just forget that you haven't answered the question. They actually just hear what you've told them. So although it feels really odd saying what you want to say, if it doesn't fit the question, it can work and you still manage to get your point across. And I think it's a very good thing for all of us to take on is have your three points, have your words ready for how you want it to come across and then deliver it.
0: And I've always wondered when you're going on radio or television how much pre rehearsal do you do are you you know reading from a script are you preparing and doing it from memory or are you kind of just rolling with going with the flow it's rolling with it so um
1: they'll often do a bit of a pre and to view where they will have somebody from their production team who will ask you some questions because they're wanting to see what could be interesting steers and then they go back and talk to their presenter but you have absolutely no idea what that presenter is going to ask you or how controversial it's going to be are they going to have a counter-arguer against you which sometimes they have Um, and that's where your three points can be really helpful actually because then no matter what they throw at you you know what you want to get across and the points that you want to make
0: how do you navigate those difficult situations where they throw in there a question that just throws you off and you weren't expecting it? Obviously getting the three points across you've just mentioned, um, but have you ever had a scenario where you have just suddenly had to really think on your feet? Yes. And I think the first thing to do is never to be afraid of a
1: pause. A pause can be really powerful and they often feel longer in your head than they do to anyone else. So just take your breath, pause for a moment. And then, Have a think about your level of willingness to answer, because you've got three options. You can answer it straight and go down there if you think that it's a relevant question and it's useful for getting your points across. You can say, that's not my area of expertise. You should probably talk to another expert about that. What I wanted to do was to come here and talk to you about this. So that's your second option. And the third one is to not even bother saying that and just answer your question that you were going to say anyway, which is what politicians do.
0: We've all seen them do it. I like the third option best. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And have there been any favorite projects or programs that you've been involved with in the media? Can you tell us about perhaps one of your most memorable experiences that you've had?
1: Oh, I mean, I know we've talked about it a bit already, but I think the food hospital will always have a really special place in my heart. Channel four was so worried about making the food hospital because they had this huge hangover from Gillian McKeith, um, the, the poo sniffer. Um, and they really wanted to make sure that they weren't repeating this cycle on channel four. So we kept it, you know, as above board as channel four can be. Um, and it was just really special. It was, A brilliant opportunity to showcase the power of dietetics in in all manner of conditions and diseases. And some of it, it just completely got to your heart. A few I can remember. So there was a little boy called Harvey who had the worst migraines that you can imagine to the point where you know he could only have been about five. And all he would do was draw pictures of him killing himself and cutting his head off because he was so, so impacted by his pain day to day. And we got him completely migraine free just through a dietetic approach and stuff like that. You know, actually, we don't often quite get to do things like that in our day to day, every day. So it was it was such a wonderful opportunity to be part of something that not only impacted those individuals, but got everybody thinking about the power of nutrition and the choices they were making. And could that be impacted how they're feeling? So, you know, yeah. That was special. It was good. I'd love to revisit it a decade later. It's not going to happen, by the
0: way. Well, I think some of our listeners will be spurred on to go and perhaps YouTube some of those older episodes of of the Food Hospital. There so, you <laughs> um, do you think that dietitians have a big enough presence in the media? And 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 if if not, why not? So I think in my career lifetime, we
1: saw a huge increase in dietitians in the media and it was wonderful to be a part of that. And I felt, you know, very, very honored and humbled to be a part of that movement of getting dietitians much more prominent in the media. I think I think we're a little bit risky now of being um, overrun by by influencers. Um, I do see much more emphasis on number of followers rather than professional qualifications in the media now. So, you know, we need to rise to the challenge. And I've seen some amazing TikToker dietitians who are rising to that challenge of actually doing both and getting their followers up, but also being able to be credible. Um, but we also need to make sure that our voices can be heard across all mediums because of course we're not now limited to just tv or just radio we need to think about all the different ways that people access and absorb their information and to make sure that we're able to respond to that in in the best way
0: and in terms of any dietitians who are listening who are wanting to go down this route of being in the media and having that presence do you have any advice that you would share with them as to how they can go about doing that so first off do it.
1: It's a lot of fun. You'll learn a lot along the way. Um, And I don't know, there's something wonderful about having a varied career of being able to do your, your clinical practice, your business focused consulting, your media. It's great. And it raises your profile overall. So I would say in terms of the other things that have happened in my career, your network broadens significantly if you start to move into this area. So other things that I've done like partnering with companies or even getting my my Aviva job actually came because of that higher profile that I had. The second thing you need to do if you want to work in the media is to grow a very thick skin and ideally become a little bit deaf because the amount of criticism and negative feedback that you will receive is quite unprecedented at times. I remember there was one chap on Twitter who uh told me that I was um uh stupid and that I had contributed to more deaths than Ebola. Which was, I mean, quite an accolade, but quite dramatic. Yeah. Quite dramatic. But this is what you get on social media. It's no holes barred. People you you know that would never say these things to your face, but have free reign to say it on social media. And so I think, you know, remember the thing of you only need to Listen to the feedback from people who you love and respect and you would want that feedback from. Everything else is just noise. Listen to your friends, listen to your
0: families, listen to your mentors. Really, it's it's the only feedback you need. Grace and thick skin. I think that's very wise advice. And in terms of social media, how much of a role does that play in, in you having your, your presence? Has it been a big part of you finding these roles in appearing on television, for example, do you think? For me, not so much, but I know now it is. So I know for the people starting now, actually, it's the
1: easiest way to get into it is to grow your social media presence. Um, and it's it's amazing to say that because, I mean, despite looks, Harriet, I'm actually not that old. Um, so the fact of how much this area has transformed in terms of the way people communicate and the way that you build a business has changed so much in 10, 15 years. It's, it's crazy. Um, but yes, I think now... Thinking about your social media presence, what platforms you're going to commit to and what your strategy is for that presence, how often you'll post, what sort of areas you'll stick to is going to be very important in building your brand.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of dietitians pursuing these opportunities, you mentioned earlier that we're kind of competing against a rise in influencers, particularly social media influencers. But I've also seen a rise in the number of other healthcare professionals, particularly doctors, GPs, for example, who are you know have a big social presence. They're very well known, and they're also often the ones quoted when a big nutrition story hits the news. What, what are your thoughts on um, doctors speaking out on a lot of these dietetic related topics? Well, I think
1: it's a very broad area and there is room for multiple professionals here. I don't think it does us any favors to be really protective about it and to not not actually engage and collaborate and cooperate. But so that's the way forward, right? We've got to reach out. We've got to build the network. We've got to collaborate with them. We've got to work out actually where, where can I be the yin to your yang? Where can I give you additional support? Where could you refer to me in some of these interviews and actually build this network and collaboration? Because it's great that they have a stage, particularly if they can use it to bring up other professionals around them. So this is where... Where networking, collaborating, uh, collaborating can be incredibly powerful.
0: Yeah, so it's very much working with rather than against. That's the message yeah, I'm getting. Exactly. Now moving on to um, some of the consultancy work you've done with different food brands throughout your career, can you tell us a bit more about some of the companies that you've worked with and again how these opportunities came about for you?
1: Yes. So I actually had to go back into my CV to answer this question um, because they all, I mean, there's been a lot over the years, but I can name you a few. So some of the ones that I've worked with over the years have been lacto-free, Little Dish. Princes, tinned fruit and fish, biotiful dairy, the Almond Board of California, Vitamix, DSM, Nutramum, Robinsons, Alpro, Flora. I stopped writing at that point. I decided that was enough to mention. Um, I should mention I'm not working with any of those brands anymore. I am just focused on my day job. Um, but again amazing opportunities over the years and you work with them in really different ways so this is the great thing about consulting is sometimes it's really branding and it's getting you out there as a spokesperson and consultant and you're going to events with their media bloggers and their influencers and you're the one giving information and then sometimes and this is actually the bit that excites me more you get to get involved with their company strategy I absolutely loved the work I did with Little Dish um, because I actually got to write the guidelines for their kids meals in terms of what should a Little Dish meal actually give uh, a three year old or a five year old in terms of nutrition. You actually get to to work with their product development team. And that's incredibly exciting as an opportunity to do with different brands. Um, And, you know, these contracts, they can be short lived. It can just be a one off project. You can develop a collaboration over many years, but it is very diverse and very exciting. You have got to get up to date on your EU regulations around health claims and what can be said and what you can do, because it is, you know, there's a lot out there in terms of rules and regulations. So that's something that you you need to spend a lot of time familiarizing and, and getting confident in.
0: Yes, I was going to mention that. And actually, there have been significant changes in that legislation just in the last year or so. Um, We did an episode on it on the Dietitian Cafe a few months back. And I think that's an area that really scares a lot of dietitians and almost puts them off working with brands. Because despite the value we can bring as dietitians, we're so worried about overstepping that mark. And it's such a gray area in terms of the claims. Would you agree? It can be, um, but look, if
1: if it's not something you're confident with and you want to partner with a brand, position your other USPs and make a suggestion for how else they get that regulatory bit answered. So Because there are specific consultants, some of which are dietitians who really specialize in it. So actually, why don't you talk about a joint collaboration of, of you bringing your USPs of whether that is branding, whether it's presenting, whether it's thinking about the strategy behind, and then actually... I also work with this other great dietitian who can do the
0: regulatory aspect with us. Find yourself a regulatory expert. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's something that um, I've been interested in because we didn't get taught much about it when we were doing our dietetic training. I don't know if you found the same. You really have to upskill and you pick it up as you go along absolutely. as a dietitian. So moving on now to your work as vice president clinical for Aviva. For those who perhaps don't know, can you explain a bit about who Aviva are and what you aim to achieve?
1: Absolutely. Uh, So Aviva provide behavior change services to people living with chronic conditions. So the vast majority of people who come through to us are living with obesity um, type two diabetes. Hypertension, cardiovascular disease. We do, however, support a much broader patient cohort. We have uh, services in the UK around calcium protein allergy and pediatrics, through to malnutrition in care homes. So, and this is because obviously we have a strong clinical leadership of dietitians that are, are driving forward all of these areas. Um, we always aim to be free at the point of access, so we are not in the self-pay wellness space. In the UK, we uh, are funded by the NHS. And in our other markets, we're funded by uh, the health insurers um, to provide this care to to the population. And we're growing. We're growing very rapidly, year on year. And um, our vision is to have a, a million active patients on our platform by 2025. And that's a, a very exciting um, uh, place to be moving to. So uh, Aviva is a we call it sort of a hybrid model. So we have... Actual dieticians and actual health coaches, about 300 of them, in fact. And then we have our digital platform. So we have an app that supports self-monitoring through things like taking photos of your meals, uh, through goal setting and action planning. So we call it to-dos, where you're signing things off each day. And we create all our content in-house. So it's none of this weird American accents. Um, We uh, create it all in a very agile way. And we make sure that we create lots of culturally appropriate uh, content for our different cohorts. And then we reiterate over and over and over again, and we grow it and um, change it and improve it. And it's a very fast-paced, exciting place to be.
0: And obviously, digital health is becoming an even bigger thing post-COVID, with a lot of services having to have gone online. Is that is that what you've seen in your experience?
1: Yeah, I think what really changed in COVID was acceptance. I think you saw... culture change of a decade happening in a year, it really put a rocket through that movement. Um, And I think there's much more widespread acceptance that care can be delivered in that way, in a far broader sense than what we had envisaged before for a a far broader patient cohort, and that it can be effective. And that's that's a a very powerful place to be if you've got the, the health professionals believing that it can uh, work for a broad set of patients, and it can be effective. Then we are in a far better place than we were five years ago. And you know, we've shown time and time again that we have a very broad patient cohort. Age is not a barrier. Gender is not a barrier. Um, uh, ethnicity is not a barrier. Social economic status is not a barrier. We we create services that are designed to be inclusive. And actually, all those traditional barriers of accessing face to face care, like working, not being able to afford travel, not being able to get childcare. Actually, all of those are undone the minute you bring the care
0: to somebody in their own house. You mentioned that Aviva partners with the NHS. Um, I'm wondering what this looks like, say, for a member of the general public living with obesity. Is it a case that they go to their GP and they get referred on to Aviva? How does it work? It's exactly that. Yes. So we have different... um, Uh, contracting models in
1: different areas so the best place to start is always with the GP because they'll know what services they can refer into so sometimes services are commissioned by NHS England centrally so if we take the case of the National Diabetes Prevention Programme we're one of the providers on that and sometimes we actually have localised commissioning so if we take the example of tier three weight management services those would be uh, localised commissioning in each area. So, yes, if you've got a health condition, I mean, we do have like a website checker where somebody can see if they're eligible. But the best place to start is with your GP, what health concerns you've got, and then they'll know exactly what services are available to each person in their area. Because, of course, we are one of many and there are other options for people in all all regions. So it's a really good place to start to know actually what's available in your area and what are you eligible to access.
0: And how does that overlap with dietitians working in the NHS, for example, who might run an outpatient clinic where they would typically see a patient living with obesity? Is is it now that in primary care they're trying to refer more of these patients on to um, companies such as Aviva, as opposed to referring them to the NHS dietetic service? How, How does that work? So
1: again, it would depend on the area. Everybody always wants to avoid people accessing care from two different dietitians at once. So obviously, in each area, that patient flow will be mapped to look at how we're we're providing care. There has been um, a tier two digital weight management service, again, that was commissioned nationally by NHS England. And um we were one we, we are one of the providers on that service as well. In a in an area where tier three dietetics is undertaken in a secondary care unit or even in a community center, then usually they don't commission a viva alongside. So often you will have one provider for each service. But not always, because sometimes actually they can complement each other beautifully that if you've got somebody who who wants to access face to face care, they can do that in their localised centre. And actually, if they are motivated and able to access a digital service, what we can do is massively increase the scale that we can deliver in that area. Because what we know, of course, not just in the UK, but the whole of Europe demand massively outstrips supply. none of us need to be afraid of competition here. We are in a situation where we do not have enough health professionals to deal with the incidence of obesity and diabetes that we have and therefore actually thinking about how to set up dual pillars of care both you know uh, digital and face-to-face how to make sure that we are able in the future to triage into fully digital care so this is something that Aviva's building up a lot of knowledge in is when somebody comes through to us asking the right questions to know how much health professional support do they need? Because what you see is actually about half of people will do very well just by giving, giving the digital tools. They're motivated. They don't have many barriers right now. So you give them the right educational content, the right tracking tools, the goal setting, the to-dos. They go off and do it. And of course, the other half, they need help. there's either a lot of barriers, there's low self-efficacy, there's issues with with lapses and relapses, and that's where we need to be able to really focus health professional time on. And that's what Aviva are really trying to spearhead and move forward, is this ability to truly understand what each patient needs at, at the first point of care so that you can be as efficient with your resources as possible.
0: You mentioned a moment ago that, um, you know, there's, there's so much demand out there and that there's not enough healthcare professionals. And I often see that Aviva are recruiting health coaches and you have lots of dietitians working for you at Aviva. So if we have anyone listening who is potentially interested in exploring career opportunities with Aviva, where do they begin? Uh, Well, we have all of our um,
1: uh, job opportunities on our website. So actually, if you just go to aviva.com, you can apply through that. There is no shortage of them. As I said, we are rapidly growing. So we're always recruiting and we have a great um, talent acquisition team who can guide each candidate through and look at all the opportunities that there are internally and link you up with the right managers.
0: And tell us a bit more about your role, Lucy, as vice president clinical for Aviva. What does that actually entail? So I do a mix of things.
1: I, um, I'm part of the executive team that over the group. So uh, a lot of it is strategic. So what clinical areas are we treating it? How are we doing it? Uh, what? Where are we going in terms of evidence build up, in terms of uh, making sure that we've got the right data for reimbursement? are we achieving the best possible clinical outcomes we can in each of our markets? What does the gold new evidence coming out show us and how do we make sure that we're doing that uh, the minute it becomes available? Um, So I do a lot of strategic thinking. I do some motivational speaking and I make sure that everybody's feeling as passionate about it as I am, because I am very passionate about it. And... um, then I have those three focus areas that I was talking about earlier. So really making sure that we're focusing and developing new clinical pathways, revisiting our existing ones. We're, we're doing what our coaches need in terms of continuing professional development, ongoing training, you know, visualization of performance and metrics, and then our clinical research strand. So it's a very diverse job. I travel to um, our, our other offices in Zurich and uh, Berlin and Paris and um, And I spend
0: a lot of time talking to people and problem solving. And that comes across very nicely on this podcast. You've got a real energy to you and it's very clear that you're a very um, confident speaker. So it's um, been wonderful having you with us. And I just wanted to wrap things up by asking you, what do you think's been one of your proudest achievements? If you reflect back on your career since you qualified as a dietitian, what what are you most proud of, Lucy?
1: Gosh, what a good question. What am I most proud of? I think it's got to be Oviva. It's got to be Oviva because we started from scratch. And it's so rare for a new digital healthcare company to it and to actually go from startup to scale up and you know the firefighting and problem solving that you do each day and each challenge of coming together as a team and overcoming it and there are you know bigger and bigger challenges each step of the way but we built such an amazing team such a passionate team that really reflects how we feel about it and what they achieve day to day is is truly inspirational so yeah that I feel most proud about I have to say for it all
0: and your passion for your job really does shine through it's um it's very yeah very inspirational and if you had a final tip or piece of advice to leave our listeners with today or a main message for them to take away from your episode what would that be
1: never feel stuck i
0: think we as dietitians
1: have such a broad skill set and so many transferable skills that the opportunities that you have within your career are relatively boundless. So never feel like you have to just stick to one job. You can, I, I call it a portfolio career where you do bits and bobs and build up a bit of everything. And I've done that for many years and absolutely loved it because you never get bored, but also don't feel afraid of stepping out. You've always got your clinical skills to come back to if, if you, if and this is something I always keep in mind. I, I have not not decided to not go back to the NHS and do clinical practice. I may do that in the future. And I think having that open to us and being able to expand and explore different areas just gives you such a rich and, in, I don't know, an exciting career. So, yeah, do
0: it. You've got amazing skills. Go use them. I feel like no area is off limits with you. Mm. You could do anything. The world's your oyster, as they say. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Lucy, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your valuable experience with us. It's been really, really great to chat with you. And a huge thank you to New Outra for making this podcast possible. If you enjoy listening to The Dietitian Cafe, please do consider subscribing and leaving a review or five-star rating so that we can reach even more healthcare professionals. You can follow New Outra on social media at New Outra across all platforms to keep up to date with the podcast and to hear the latest updates on medical nutrition. Thank you for listening and our next episode will be out very soon.